This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, thank you so much for downloading another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. Like many people, perhaps many of you, I have been searching for understanding about the racial inequities that still clearly exist here in 2020. And if we look for it, we can all pretty easily see evidence of systemic racism in our culture and in the industry of agriculture. But identifying them is not really the struggle, is it? I mean, understanding and gaining a sense for sort of what do we do about it is at least where I have been spending a lot of time soul searching. And if I'm going to be open and vulnerable with you, which I probably will be a few times on this episode, I wondered if this topic even had a place on this podcast. I mean, there are a lot of really important issues that I wouldn't dedicate an episode of this show to because they don't really fit the theme of the show. This one does, however, in my eyes, because not only do I believe conversations like this are extremely important in general, but becoming a more racially equitable industry will dramatically impact the future of agriculture. And obviously, that's what this show is really all about. Well, I can't think of anyone who knows that better than our guest here today, Brianna Clover. Brianna has over 12 years of agribusiness experience, mostly in marketing with companies like Alenco, BASF, and DSM. Earlier this year, she left her corporate career to start consulting, mostly around educating and advocating for racial equality in the workplace. Now, let me be clear. I'm showing up here at the table knowing that I have benefited from immense privilege. In fact, I could argue that just growing up on a farm is a tremendous advantage for a career in agribusiness or ag tech, just to cite one obvious inequity that exists out there. Now, I'm in no position to tell you or anyone else how to feel about your own advantages or disadvantages. This episode is really my attempt to ask some questions that I've felt uncomfortable asking in the past about racism and about privilege and really about under the circumstances here in 2020, where can we go from here? So now that I've sort of got that context in, let, let's get in the episode here. We'll start off with Brianna talking about some of her background and early experiences that led her into this passion of creating spaces for tough conversations about race in the workplace. I can remember since I was a young girl, really interested and concerned about fairness and about equality, even if I couldn't name it that when I was younger, it's always been a part of who I am. And as a biracial woman with a Black identity, my lived experience as a Black woman working in agribusiness has cultivated within me this intense passion for creating brave spaces to have tough conversations around race in the workplace. I think it's incredibly important, not only in agribusiness, but just 
in corporate America in general. And I, I truly believe that our future depends on us bringing that lens into our diversity inclusion, inclusion initiatives and really better understanding what we can do as organizations to create inclusive environments for Black people and people of color. Yeah. So for you, in your decade in agribusiness, when did you start to perceive that there was still a need for these issues to be addressed? I mean, to the point where you eventually, you know, started your own consultancy to focus on it? I would say right off the bat. So I, right out of college, I got a full-time job, was so excited about it, and was moved to Tyler, Texas. And it would have been the first time I'd be that far away from my family. And my dad specifically had a conversation with me about what towns not to drive through or stop for gas in because of the lack of safety for people of color. And so I think that was, even before moving and starting my role, I had that on my conscience. I started off in sales. So I was calling on customers in rural parts of Texas. And that was a concern of my father is my safety. So I was welcomed with open arms from my customers. I truly remember the first few years of my experience in ag being just exciting. And I was, you know, drinking from the fire hose. And I would say though, that no, all of my, co co my customers were white people. And when we would go in processing plants, for instance, most of, most of the people working in processing plants are black people or Latinx people. And I noticed that visually, but I mean, didn't, it wasn't as if my experience was, you know, I had a, a negative experience with customers. It was just an observation that I was making. Then, then just from the perspective of corporate, like working in corporate there, and, and I don't think this is unique to the companies that I worked at. I, I think that this is a common thread that we see that the diversity and inclusion conversation today largely centers and focuses on gender. I think there's a, a general lack of understanding regarding the intersection of race and all other diversity and inclusion matters. And I do believe that there is a lack of knowledge and a discomfort that leads to almost a complete absence of the topic of race in any workshops, training, diversity metrics. Um, so I would say in my over 12 years of experience, I have not been exposed to any kind of diversity and inclusion training, initiatives, communication that even touches on race as a topic. And I think if you look around corporate America, and specifically I'm talking my experience in agribusiness, organizations are predominantly white. And oftentimes I think Black people and other voices of people of color are often stifled and not necessarily intentionally. It's just due to the culture that is within predominantly white organizations that you see across industries, not just in agribusiness. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think what is coming to the forefront of the, at least the cultural conversation and, and hopefully into agribusiness as well, is that it's not necessarily the outright racism of, well, that person can't get a promotion because they are black or that, that mm -hmm. person can't get, get a promotion because they are Latinx. It's it's more embedded in, in the fabric of, of the culture itself. And I, I think yeah. that's what a lot of us are sort of trying to understand. And it makes it harder to see and harder to identify. I'd like to say mo the vast majority of people in our industry 
would speak out against, you know, outright racism, Mm -hmm. but also may not see some more systemic type racism. So could you could you speak to that a little bit about what is it in in sort of the framework of the culture, either in the agribusiness itself or in the industry in general, that sort of creates this 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 bent that that makes it unfair? Yeah, would love to. So really quickly, there's two different types of racism. So there's systemic or structural, and then there's individual. So oftentimes I think people, when they think of racism, they think of that interpersonal individual level. So what happens between individuals, but really the the larger piece of that is the systemic. So I think it's, I, I would love to just kind of share some different dynamics of what that might look like as you asked. Please. The first one, let's just start of, on land ownership in general. So from the European colonization of stolen land and enslaved labor, Indians and Africans formed the backbone of our first economy, which was agriculture. So I think that that's a really important historical context to keep in mind. And when you fast forward today, Black people are disproportionately represented in land and farm ownership. I was reading a stat the other day that in 1910, the percentage of Black farm owners and operators was around 12%, I think. And in 2012, it was down to 1.5%. There's a series of historical events that led to that. But where, where it's relevant today is in the loan applications from Black farmers versus white farmers. So this is a little ways back, but in 1997, the USDA did an internal audit and they concluded that in the southeastern part of the United States, loan applications from black farmers took three times as long to be processed as those from white farmer loans. So I think that whole land ownership understanding is important because I think that's on the agricultural side. If you think in agribusiness specifically, so corporate America in agribusiness, I think it's all interconnected. So if you think about housing and education, our history, and, and I, I don't want to get into too much of a historical lesson, but if, if you research about the GI Bill and redlining, there have been systematic policies in place that have prevented home ownership of Black people, a disproportionate amount of home ownership. And when you think about owning a home, that's the easiest way for a family to gain wealth. And furthermore, owning a home is in a prominent neighborhood leads to more funding in education. So if you are a child who grows up in a prominent neighborhood, your school will get more funding so you have more access to resources. So then let's just assume that, because we do know that there are Black people who go to to good schools as well. So let's just assume you're one of the lucky people of color that is in a good school and gets into a good college. Fast forward to recruiting. So There was some research done by a Harvard study that showed that just a few years back that showed that white sounding resumes get twice as many interview requests as identical resumes with a black sounding name. So even the implicit biases that one would have in reviewing a resume, even if you're not consciously understanding that you're looking at two different resumes or exact same resumes, but a white sounding name and a black sounding name, there still is that structural hurdle that people of color have to get over. Let's say they pass that and they actually get to that company and they're working at that company. There's a few problems there. There's a lack of representation. So there's only, if I'm remembering correctly, in the the most recent Fortune 500 companies, there are only four Black CEOs. And of those Black CEOs, none of them are women. There's 7% of CEOs are women in the Fortune 500, and none of them are Black. 
So there is a representation issue. I think there's also a mobility issue. So there was another study done, and I apologize, I can't remember what the, the name of the study was, but it, they interviewed you know, Black people within white-collar professions within corporate America, and nearly two-thirds of them said that they have to work harder than their colleagues to advance their careers. So I think that even once that a person is within the, the company and they have a job, and maybe they are experiencing some mobility, but they're seeing that they're not experiencing mobility as fast as their, their white colleagues... They're also just dealing with microaggressions and other prejudice and discrimination within the job that affects affects them on an everyday basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, a lot of us, what has been going on in our country, you know, since George Floyd, his tragic death, I think a lot of us are doing some more soul searching and going internal about like, whoa, well, how am I mm-hmm. part of the problem? Right. And I, I think definitely with me, it's been... I have been conscious for some time about my privilege and certainly the the currents going in my favor when they're probably going against other people. Mm-hmm. I'm going through some of the internal work to understand, like, what can I do about that? You know, I don't want to rush to say, well, yeah, that's tragic. And, you know, it. what can I do? But I also, when I get to the more earnest question of, no, seriously, like, what can I do about that mm-hmm. to, to help? That's where I'm kind of still looking for answers. So I don't know if you can weigh in on on any sort of guidance there. This is kind of maybe a selfish question, but I think maybe a lot of people are in similar s- situations. Yeah, and that's a hard one. I think, so th- the pillars that I focus on are one, education, two, introspection, and then three, action. So I think sometimes the what can I do tomorrow about it is just that education piece, really understanding you know, what are the dynamics that that our country are in today? I mean, we see it on the news now, but George Floyd wasn't the first Black man to be murdered mm-hmm. by the hands of police. There is a societal, a structural dynamic that's going on that, that impacts every aspect of our life. And I think that understanding that is the first step. So while it's harder to tangibly measure what you're doing when you're just solely educating yourself, I think it's so important. The introspection piece, I think just better understanding racial identity and how that impacts you personally, and then how that impacts the spaces that you're in is another important learning to take time to look within yourself and the organizations that you work in to really understand, well, now that I have that, the, the context, that, that knowledge piece, what are the biases and policies and structure that's negatively impacting people of color within my environment, within my space? And really take time to, to soak that in to understand that. And when it comes to action, there are a number of things that we can do. I think if you're an employee of an organization and you feel passionate about this, asking your leadership to, to pull, call more attention to this. I, I don't want to underestimate the power of sending an email to your leadership team. And there are a lot of resources that can help you draft what language to use. And that's something that I can help with too, that I have in the past of just drafting the language around how do I ask my organization or my leadership to to play a role here. I think another action is, which sounds simple, but it is profound, is to find Black-led organizations to donate your time or your money to. There are a lot of Black organizations that are doing this work in society today. Find some of those and, you know, and support financially or with your time, whatever you're able to do. And I think that's as simple too, that I've tried to, um, 
be more conscious about even in my spaces is if I want to buy a book, instead of jumping to go to Amazon, I look up what are Black-owned bookstores that I can support. When I go get a coffee, instead of going to the Starbucks, what are some Black-owned coffee shops locally? So that's something that you can just do even in your personal space of just supporting Black entrepreneurs, professionals, businesses. The action that is within the company, I really think creating a culture of a a brave space to talk about racial dynamics um, is so important. And that can start in a multitude of ways of just bringing in training for employees to understand implicit bias and understand, you know, what they can individually do to um, be more aware of that in, in the workplaces. Bringing in, you know, there are people who do this for a living that facilitate conversations around this and to help organizations build plans to to structurally make sure that the their policies and their recruiting practices are racially equitable. Yeah, so those are just a few things like off the top of my head that that I can think of specific action. Yeah, those are great practical yeah. tips. Well, I want to speak just a few minutes about just about this moment we're in right now. We've alluded to it, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts and, you know, not asking you to speak for, you know, everyone who who identifies as black. But for your experience, how has how has this been for you? How are you feeling about things? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just what are your thoughts on court, sort of this this current moment that we're in in the United States right now? Yeah. Thank you for asking. To be honest, I have mixed feelings and it has absolutely been a roller coaster ride as it is has for a lot of us. There is a part of me that is hopeful. I really think that we were we are at a moment in history that we can choose to not go back to quote unquote normal. I'm using quotations here. But to really revolutionize and transform our country and our understanding of the racial dynamics in our country and how they show up in all in our workplace. So there is a part of me that is hopeful that that this could be a turning. It has the opportunity to be a turning point. I am also cautiously optimistic, though, because I have seen this happen a lot in our spaces where a national tragedy leads to people wanting to do something. So we jump and we try to do and then we're distracted by the next, you know, shiny object or the next tragedy that happens. And so I think that while there is a lot of hope, I also am cautiously optimistic because we've seen this before. I think there is something different about this time. And I I had a conversation with my classmates. So I'm currently enrolled in a master's certificate program, anti-racism in urban education. And we talked about this this very thing of why does this time feel different? And there were a lot of interesting theories and ideas around this. I think one is that we saw in daylight a black black man murdered in daylight. And that is something that we didn't visually see like we saw in the countless others of other innocent black and brown lives who have died in, in the past years. I think two is we're seeing a movement and there's this theory called interest convergence. And it's the theory that Black people experience civil rights movement and progress when the interests of both Black people and white people converge. And so I ask myself sometimes too, are we seeing these companies making statements, public statements, because it's what they have to do for their reputation. 
I don't want to believe that's the only reason. I want to believe that that is step one to the work that they're going to do internally. So that goes back to my hopefulness. When I think on a personal level, though, Tim, one of my friends, we were just talking about what was going on, and and she said something that stuck with me, which is so true, I think a lot of us are feeling, is that people think this is about George Floyd, but we have been crying, we are still crying over Emmett Till. And that's a profound and simple statement, but it's, there are so many other lives lost because of the color of their skin. And so a lot of us have been really passionately working in this space for a really long time, crying out, saying this work is so important. We have to really call attention to racial equity in the workplace. We have to write our policies and our recruiting in the way that we're addressing this. So I feel that's the other reason why I feel it's hopeful is that maybe this is the sign of the next step that, you know, organizations really want to commit to this. So I'm rambling now, but that's kind of just in a nutshell, the emotions and the feeling and the thoughts I've been having over the past few weeks. Yeah, no, you're not rambling at all. And I really, I really appreciate that. And, And yeah, I mean, to your point, it's, you know, we saw it in broad daylight with three other police officers standing around and it really mm-hmm. caused a lot of questions like, okay, well, what conditions make this okay? And then we start asking like, well, this is not just a police issue. It's a, you know, cultural fabric issue. And that, and that's where sometimes for me, it kind of gets almost, it almost gets too big to to feel like you can get your hands around it. Mm-hmm. So getting to your hope, you know, your hopeful, I know you said you kind of have hope, but you also have, you know, cautious optimism. If things were to sort of play out in your hopeful scenario, you know, what happens next? Like we're, you know, right now, the amount of legitimate rage at the current society is mm-hmm. is coming to the forefront. And this is bringing this conversation to the forefront, which is a positive thing that it's bringing the conversation to the forefront. Where do, how do we move from conversation to actually, you know, making progress? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to kind of put a plug in for myself and, and I'm kind of the, this racial equity framework that I have. That's built. why you're here because um, <laughs> to talk about these next steps. Yes. So first, before I get into that, I think one yeah very tangible next step is to, for, for, and this is probably more for the larger organizations, but putting their money to organizations that are doing this work already, especially right now where there is some momentum in our country. If you can identify key organizations that are at, are working for this cause on a tirelessly on a daily basis, and you have the financial with all to do that, I think that's a first very tangible step you can do. One example is Ben and Jerry's. Like they've been, they have publicly stated their stance on racial justice on their website for at least a few years now. And they put their money where their mouth is. They put money towards organizations that are doing this work and that have been for years. So that's one thing I just want to plug in there for like the larger organizations or even smaller ones. If you have, you know, $100 to $20,000 to $100,000 put money into organizations that have been doing this, who have the expertise and the focus. So that's one thing. Now, if I'm talking just within the organization, it's important to keep in mind that achieving a racially equitable workplace is a journey. It's not a destination. So it's a continual investment. And I feel, I find that comforting because often it's like when we want to do something, we want to jump to, all right, let's get it done, check the box and we're done and we're in a racially equitable workplace. But 
we have to understand the reality that we are in a racialized society. We operate within racist institutions. And so this is a journey, not a destination. I really focus on, um, I've created six modules that build on each other as a way to really start with the executive leadership or the leadership of organizations. And my hope is that it trickles down. And I also offer a toolkit, so to speak, for employees who are passionate about doing this work and they want to hold their leaders accountable and they don't know where to start. So I have that as well, because I think it's going to take a top down and a bottom up desire and drive. But the modules I I have built as kind of a structure, a framework, really starts with the question of why is a racial lens critical for our DNI initiatives? So it gets into understanding the history and psychology around race and really uncovering important topics that we deal with in the workplace, such as unconscious racial bias, awareness of privilege. So it really is like the start starting point. I recommend is that there has to be that common understanding and that common language within the workplace. The next step, in my opinion, is how has living and working in a racialized country impacted the way I see myself and others that I work with? How has it impacted our workplace? So we really get into the specifics around how individuals construct and maintain their sense of themselves as race beings within the context of our history and the ideological constructions of race. So really getting deep. That's where the introspection is. Then the third step is assessment. So I have created a racial equity assessment that an organization can take. It looks at both the individual and organizational levels, and it, it is a baseline for companies to say, how, where do we begin? What, where are we at along this anti-racism continuum and individually and as an organization? So this serves as your like baseline understanding that then you can take over time to measure the progress of your work. So that's unique to the organization is like, let's assess where we're at. And then we take those results and we create a dialogue that my hope is leads to greater understanding and a greater commitment to address the specific issues within your organization regarding racial equity. And then we weave that into the current diversity and equity initiatives that you have within your company. We really create an outline of what are our goals? What are the timely metrics for us to achieve? And then we do follow-up. And that is, we bring that assessment back and we, we follow up over time. How are we making progress? What are areas that we need to, to hone in or, or put some more focus on? And that last bonus, which I'm very passionate about, is anti-racism activism within our communities. So this is really for companies who have done the work, but they want to be able to publicly state their their anti-racist policies and really create a movement and an impact within their communities. Mm-hmm. That's so great. And I, those... I keep talking. I'm just so passionate no, no, about no, no, all no, of it. No, no, it's great. It's great. It, so uh, it, that's designed for companies then of all sizes? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned kind of at the end, kind of getting to that point where you're an activist to an extent. That's something else I wanted to ask you. And I know we're kind of running short on time here, so Mm -hmm. so I want to be mindful of your time. But there seems to be, you know, certainly a mentality right now. And it, it, I understand that we're in a very tense time right in the moment. But there seems to be some people that seem that want to want to say, hey, you're either an activist or you're a racist. And you kind of it's kind of like one or the other. And I'm mm-hmm. curious about what your thoughts are that I'm sure you've seen that on social media, especially what are your thoughts on that? And how do we, is that the right approach? I guess is, is maybe the, a good place to start. Yeah. Well, first I want to say that the context that I have seen that comment being used is from people who have been actively 
working to dismantle racist systems and structures. So it is a bold statement. Is either you're an activist or a racist. I would like us to think of it more of we cannot afford as individuals, as an as a society, to do nothing anymore. And that doing something looks different for everybody. And no one should feel that whatever they've decided to do to address the issues of racism in our country, no one should feel that they're doing it wrong or no one should feel that they should be doing more. I honestly, I actually think that that is part of white supremacy culture is this perfectionism attitude that we have to be perfect. So Mm. I just want to say that activism looks different depending on who you are. There are all kinds of things. Activism for you might mean I'm going to proactively buy books from bookstores that are owned by Black people. Activism for you might be when you see something that is questionable, that you call it out and you engage in a conversation around it. I do believe that we all have to do something and we can't get stuck in the, well, it doesn't, it doesn't impact me. So, and I don't know what to do. So I'm not going to do anything because I don't know where to start. There are so many resources out there. There are so many books. And I'm noticing that a lot of the books that have been out for a while are on back order because so many people are hungry to to read and to learn, which is an amazing thing. So if all your activism looks like right now is to buy a book about it, whether that's White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo or How to Be an Anti-Racist by Kendi, that's good enough. So I don't know if that directly answered your question, but I think it's we can't afford to do nothing but activism looks different for all of us and just do the next right thing. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for doing this and answering all of my questions. I think this is this is even better than I hoped it would be and I had high expectations. So thank you very much for taking the time and doing this. I'm so glad. Thank you. I I'm honored to be a part of this and I love this I love talking about this. I think it's so important. So thank you for giving me that opportunity, Tim. Yeah, and how can companies follow up with you to learn more about that program that you kind of lined out there? So I, I think the best place right now is LinkedIn, Brianna Clover on LinkedIn. I do have a newsletter that just launched this week, cool. 1619 Consulting on Substack. And I will be launching my website here in the next week. And once that happens, if you sign up for the newsletter, then you'll get information on that as well. Thank you again to Brianna for answering some of my questions about systemic racism and privilege and what we can try to do to create a more equitable agriculture industry. I do hope this plays a small role in trying to normalize these conversations in agribusiness and eventually helping us become more aware of our inherent bias about people who may be different from us in some way. As always, if you have thoughts about any of the content on this show, feel free to email me, tim at aggrad.com, or I'm on Twitter at Tim Hammerich. Like I said at the top of the show, I'm trying to understand these issues better and get a sense of how we can make people feel like they have an important place in this industry, in agriculture, in agribusiness, in ag tech. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey,